0: Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash CollinsLastStand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be right on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Collins Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash collinslaststand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. As always, I'm joined by my brother, the one with good taste since he picked Super Nintendo, Dagan Moriarty.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hi, guys. Good to see you today. Good to see you, my friend. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I do know know, when we'll be back again. again. (laughs) Yeah, you'll, you'll come back, I guess...
0: Let me think about this. This is the fifth wave, the last episode of the fifth wave. You're leaving right after this, right after this, I'm recording Sacred Symbols with Chris. And then we're going to bid you adieu. We're going to push the car out of the driveway like all the yes. Italian families always we'll really do. we really
1: miss you. Yeah, all right, bye. <laughs> we're going to miss you bye. a lot.
0: <laughs> and then I will come see you in Philadelphia in December for wave six of Knockback. And that would actually make us even with three trips each. So then we could just figure out what goes on from oh, there. But yeah. we would need to reconvene.
1: In February, like mid to late February, I think, if my mathematics I think are that's correct. correct. I think that's yeah. correct. I don't know if my mathematics are correct. I'll be running from a Philly winter, and that will be fantastic. Yeah, so
0: maybe that would actually make sense, although I would be running towards a Philly winter because I don't yeah. get any snow out here. But who cares about you, dude? Well, that's true. Fair enough. No offense. No, On this show, no one cares about me. Everyone cares about you. <laughs> For the uninitiated, this is Knockback, our nostalgia podcast done by the Moriarty brothers each week. It's supported on Patreon at patreon.com slash CollinsLastStand. Supporting us there allows us to do this show in perpetuity and also gives you special perks, including exclusive podcasts, the ability to vote on show topics, which this show is one of those shows, by the way. Yeah. And you can also get early ad-free access to all my shows, including Sacred Symbols, the PlayStation podcast, Fireside Chats, the Eclectic Interview series, SideQuest, the video game YouTube channel, and this here, Knockback. So we're excited to be recording this episode. It is the final one of Wave 5, the next I guess after this 8, 9, or 10 episodes you hear are all going to be Dagon chosen topics along, kind of integrated as it were, with your own voted topics on Patreon. Exactly. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'm excited about this topic. It is Nintendo versus Sega. And specifically, because it was a little bit kind of vague and nebulous in how it was worded when we did the vote on Patreon at patreon.com slash Last Stand. But... I kind of narrowed it down to the 90s, to Sega versus Nintendo. And the thing about it, Dagan, is that I don't want it to be about the consoles and the history of and all that kind of stuff because we'll do individual episodes about Master System and Genesis and Saturn and Dreamcast as time goes on. I think we've already kind of touched on NES and SNES and other episodes. I don't want it to be about any of that. I want it to be about the zeitgeist of the time, and I want it to be about the battle that was waging between these two companies and how Nintendo obviously ultimately ended up winning. But before I get into any of that, we've been doing a little bit Of a new kind of thing here at the beginning of these episodes in Wave Five, Dagan wanted to bring it back by popular demand. Indeed, (laughs) was it popular? I'm not sure. You, you know, I'm I'm not reading your Twitter, you know, your Twitter feed. So for all I know, everyone's asking you to bring them back the dad jokes, and so we're gonna open with a couple dad jokes related to Sega and Nintendo. Dagan, hit me. You ready?
1: Okay. What did Mario use to talk to the booze? I don't know. A Luigi board. Ah, I don't like that. I that's got a, a really one. bad one. I think this one's better. Okay, you let me know which one is better because I don't know if my taste in these dad jokes is accurate. Okay, but I think this one's better. I mean, that was horrific. The last one. That so was, <laughs> yeah. This is not hard to top. Okay. In other words, oh uh, yeah. Why is Toad always at the best parties? I don't know. Because he's a fun guy. Oh, oh, oh I like that one. That's din a good. That's a good wee one. Wee and good Toad one. is a fun guy. He is.
0: Harold. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good time. That was pretty good. All right. I'm... You're the voice actor. You're in SAG-AFTRA. <laughs> I had no idea you were in SAG-AFTRA. Absolutely. Now, Dave, I want to frame this particular episode in a similar fashion to the way we framed an episode a few weeks ago. For us, it was two days ago when we recorded it, but for the, for the audience, it might have been a month or so ago, which was when we did the lunchtime and recess episode, we framed the entire thing around the audience's questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas that they submitted to us. And I think that's a good way to go forward because instead of making this very history driven and like I said, very scholarly, which some of our episodes are. I don't want it to be about that because we really should give credence to each of these individual consoles and moments Definitely. and they should get their own episode. And I don't want to rush through and be like, let's talk about the Genesis. Let's talk about the Master System because we should give, you know, the Genesis, the 10 minute episode it deserves. And we should give Master System <laughs> the literally 30 second interstitial oh, on the Genesis my. episode Ooh. that it deserves. Oh. You know what I'm saying? I do and I don't. OK, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate Sega nearly as much as I, I put on. I hate the Genesis a lot. I actually like the Master System quite a bit compared to, you know, how I feel about the Genesis. Very charming. System. But how do you feel about that? Do you think that would be a good way to frame Absolutely. our conversation That's and perfect. then we can we talk about it? And I think you're going to have some interesting insight into this. And I will, too, because your best friend, PJ, who always comes up on this, was a Sega kid. So you had really direct access to all of that stuff that was very foreign to us. Yeah. And I did, too, with my friends down the street, Tim and Mike and Chris, who... You know, as a family, kind of had everything, but one of them was still like the Nintendo guy, and one of them was still the, the Genesis That's guy. But so you could funny. still go into their bedrooms
1: and play whatever. So we still
0: had a little bit of action. It tore to families
1: apart. I know it was, <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was. And totally PJ is like the biggest sucker I ever knew in person for the whole console war ad campaign. He totally fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker, from Master System all the way through Dreamcast. I don't and we'll get to that. I don't even remember the Master System ad campaign at all. I don't even remember there being Master
0: System. No, but he was just a Sega kid from that. Oh, I see. Which is and there's probably ad campaigns in the magazines and such, I guess, because I didn't read. You know, it's funny. I didn't read and I don't know if you did. I don't remember having access to them. I didn't read any of these agnostic gaming magazines as a very young kid. I read Nintendo Power pretty much exclusively. If you told me Nintendo Power was the only gaming magazine that ever existed when I was eight years old, I would have believed
1: you. Yeah, but that's very believable for you and acceptable. I guess I was particularly unsophisticated because I'm much older than you and Nintendo Power was the first magazine I paid attention to. So that's odd. You know, for, granted, from the beginning, from issue one, but, you know, that's kind of funny that I wasn't paying attention. And I really didn't pay attention to that many publications until Superplay Magazine, that famous European SNES magazine, which was gorgeous. And by the way, I tried to get back. I tried to see on eBay, like how much that magazine is going for like $12 an issue. Is that good or bad? That's a lot of money. Is it? So if you want to get like, if I wanted to get 10 issues of Superplay, I'd have to pay $120 for See, it. See, that
0: doesn't sound that
1: ridiculous. Really? For a ma- the magazines are 25 years old.
0: Yeah, that's true. That doesn't personally Maybe seem... I'm a cheap bastard. I don't know. You are really cheap. That's uh, true. You, you know what? You actually aren't I'll cheap take at it. all. You actually aren't cheap at all. <laughs> We grew up in such sting, such a stingy household that it's a surprise that you aren't indeed as stingy. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. We came out. Our Man, way. we're really coming out swinging, oh, to Dad. This God, oh Dad, my That gonna... was
1: like Dad was just listening to this and being like, "Wow, well, I'm safe this episode." <laughs> 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 just as we just as we, we just issued a smack.
0: <laughs> Go get that bag of onions that's been in the basement for two years. Those are probably still good. Quick, turn off the AC. Dad's coming. <laughs> 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 Poor Dad. He would still know. He would still know that the heat was on just by walking in and using some sort of... He knew. He just understood. He's like, the heat was on in here. (laughs) Like, how do you know that? It's because I saw you playing basketball on the street and running inside. It was only one of two reasons. Either you were lowering the stereo that you were blowing out in the living room, or you were shutting the heat off, or
1: both. But, Dad, you haven't even ran the corner yet. Yes, but I tracked you through the front lawn. (laughs) Like... Yeah, he's like looking at the grass. I and, see so t- t- and then tasting it with his fingers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> God, he used to get so mad about me leaving the lamp on in my bedroom when I was gone, leaving the computer on to where I put a password on that between the computer keyboard that I had that had no letters on it and my password. He couldn't shut the computer off, which drove him insane. It's just impossible. He for saw it. the
1: title of this episode and was so happy. He's like, I just get to listen for a change and not be assaulted in this episode. <laughs> Five minutes in. <laughs> When there's a
0: will, there's a way. I love it. Now, I guess before we get into the questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas that were submitted by our listeners, and remember, the only way you can interact on that level with Knockback is to support the show on patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, as many thousands of you do, and we do appreciate that very much. Everyone from $1 a month to $50 a month or so. You know, and you get all sorts of different perks. And we really do appreciate you no matter how much you are able to submit. And we don't want you to break the bank. So do what's most financially feasible for you, unless you have a wife and three or four children, in which case this shows way more important than treating your family right. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> now, Dagan, as far as I look at this, this is a five round battle between Sega and Nintendo. And yeah. the funny thing is we talk about the console wars and all this kind of stuff. Sega lost every round. It wasn't even close. And Truly. this is why I think it's so strange that we talk about it in such complex terms, because it's really not that complex. With the exception of the Super Nintendo and Genesis, nothing was close between these companies in terms of units sold, in terms of residents and global residents, especially globally. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about each of the rounds just really quickly, just so people know what was going on here. OK, so the first round in the fight between these two companies was NES and slash Famicom versus what was known in Japan as like Mark III, but what we knew more globally as the master system. The NES or Famicom came out in 83, and the NES as we knew it in the West came out in 85. Master System came out in Japan as Mark III in 85, and in the West in 86. NES sold 62 million units. Master System sold 13 million units. Round two was Super Nintendo versus Genesis. Genesis came out in 1988, I believe, in Japan and it came out in the West in 89. Super Nintendo came out in 1990 as Super Famicom in Japan came out in the West in 1991. This was the closest battle between the two. And still, Nintendo overwhelmingly won, 49.1 million units sold to 30.75 million units sold. The third round was N64, which came out globally in 1996 versus the Saturn that came out in Japan in 94 and around the world in 95. Famously at E3, they revealed that it was available immediately. 33 million for N64, 9.2 million for, for the Sega Saturn. Round four was GameCube versus Dreamcast. And this one's a little bit off kilter, but GameCube came out in 2001. Dreamcast came out globally, obviously, in 1999. The famous 9999 ad campaign, 1998 in Japan, of course. 21.7 million to 9.1 million. GameCube won. And the special round, the fifth round, the special round was Game Boy versus Game Gear. Game Boy came out in 1989. Game Gear 1990 in Japan. 1991 in the West. 118 million versus 10.6 million. Game, Game Boy wins. Imagine? So Everybody I,
1: raise your hand if you had a Game Gear. I am the only one raising my hand right now. And that's because my, my wife took it from somebody that left it at her house or something.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So you have a Game Gear. I, I have never, a Game I Gear. actually never went and got one because you have to put, what is it, like 17D batteries into the thing oh, and it lasts two ridic- hours?
1: It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's totally insane. It was cool. I remember liking the Game
0: Gear when I, my friends would have it. It was very impressive because I was used to the Game Boy. It had a backlight, you know, and it yeah. was in color. But it was so the Nomad was even cooler because that was a portable Genesis quite ahead of its time. But I'd love to get one of those. They were supporting too many things at once. So with those things established, again, let's get in to what the listeners let's do it had to say. Can't wait to hear to it. us at patreoncom last stand. And I think that these are basically published in the order that I received them on the thread. I usually put them in order, but they're not in any order cool. here. Cool. Alex Moans or Monez I don't know, but I'm going to say Moans because it's hotter, says you keep forgetting the best, if all the TurboGrafx slash duo, at least in my humble and not as popular opinion. Best to you guys and keep up the good work. This is an interesting one to start with because you actually did have access to TurboGrafx 16. Did. I did. Which I didn't. I didn't play TurboGrafx until I was an adult. Who had it and what was your experience with it? And, and where did it kind of play in the Sega Nintendo battle? Because it really was kind of an irrelevant factor.
1: It was. It, it's so funny because I was thinking about it and I wrote a couple of notes to myself about you know, the PC Engine slash turbo Graphics, And it always had a mystique to us because even then we knew, I mean, we were a little older because, you know, I'm in the mid, my mid-40s now, but back then we were a little older, but it always had a mystique. We always knew that it was kind of rare and special and that it didn't have like a huge market penetration. And it always seemed exotic to us. It had that distinct Japanese flavor. Now, we were aware of that because we were already into anime and we were already into manga. So it sort of had that allure. But my friend John, my best friend John that he grew up with, my best friend since I was four years old, got one, and it's so interesting because he never had an NES, he never had anything Sega. He had an Atari, he had an Atari twenty six hundred, but his next console was a, for some reason, was a Turbo Graphics sixteen. The only two games that I remember playing at his house was Keith Courage and Alpha Zones, obviously came with the console at that time, and he had the Ease game. I don't know if it was e- Wanderers from Ease, Whatever Ease game. The yeah, Wanderers he- was three. Oh, you know what it was? It was Ease books one and two, right. I think. Right. right, which is still, they're still bundled together and released together to this day. Which, which is, is so, so crazy. Yeah. So he had that game and he wasn't an anime guy or a manga guy, John. So that game was like really maybe the first home console game that I saw that had that really distinctive anime flavor to it. And he wasn't an anime guy. So I was like, I always felt like I should have had that. I was like, why don't I have this? This is, should be my thing. And then later on, about a year or two later, my friend Matt Kalin, good pal of mine, still close with Matt, he had the Turbo Graphics and he had R-Type, the R-Type port, and he had Splatterhouse, which was always like, you know, that's revered as like a, one of the great ports of Splatterhouse. So I was fortunate enough to be able to play those games, and I remember being done with skateboarding, and we'd sleep over at Matt's house, and we'd play the Turbo Graphics, and it was so fun, because no one else had it besides John. So I was lucky enough to have two friends that had the game, you know, the system. And I think I always I wasn't paying attention to price at that point. I was anywhere from 15 to 17 years old at that point. But I think I always thought like later on, we realized when we realized that the Neo Geo was a home console, that it was just a super pricey thing and that it was like totally out of our range. We just had that high price association with it, which wasn't necessarily true. So that was interesting about it it's a cool console with some niche games
0: on it, and i'm glad that some of them over time especially with the digital revolution starting with xbox live and psn and steam these games have slowly kind of filtered out because i remember being in a mall with you and this is something you would never remember but i remember being in a mall with you looking at super nintendo games and they had wanders from ease which was the third ease game and i remember being like what in the god's name is this i don't know i've never heard of this and how do you wise right, i remember thinking right. it was wise for until probably the early 2000s i was like we thought it was wise. wise for years yeah
1: but it's Ease. It's Ease.
0: And I think the eighth or ninth one just came out somewhat recently on PS4. And they're fun action RPGs. They're really actually cute games. There's a few good ones on Vita, a few on PS3, a few on PS4, etc. Kind of highly recommended if you like grindy, action-based role-playing games with very minimal story. They are grindy. I like that kind of stuff. Me you so. know, Not everyone does. You know, I know the grind is a... To put it diplomatically, it's a very controversial design aesthetic or design philosophy, and I actually think it's necessary. Do you want Dragon Quest to be 10 minutes long, or do you want it to be 50 hours long? (laughs) Craig Gunter wrote in and said, the Sega series for me was Streets of Rage. Mm. Now, I will give it to them, and when I I mean them, Sega, because I'm more with the Nintendo camp here, obviously, as we've already established. They did have the beat-em-up and brawler genre on lockdown on Genesis compared to Super Nintendo. I can't really recall... That many classic brawlers that were native to or best on Super Nintendo, which is different than NES because NES did have with Double Dragon and a few others, some pretty good stuff. And Double Dragon did come to SNES. But yeah, would you agree that Sega Genesis kind of had that beat up genre on the lock? Because, you know, even with Golden Axe and others, it was a fun kind of foray into something that was not really
1: found in great numbers on SNES. It was something that SNES was lacking. One of the rare things that it didn't yeah, have. Yeah, I mean, SNES had Final Fight. That was the big thing, Final Fight between Streets of Rage. But I'll tell you about Streets of Rage. When I first started collecting for the Genesis about five years ago or so, five or six years ago, I didn't remember playing the Streets of Rage games. And my fir- one of my first purchases was Streets of Rage 2. And I do think they're really good games and I could see the nostalgic resonance and they're really, really fun, but I think they're slightly overrated. I was always a Final Fight guy growing up, and even in thinking about it in retrospect, I think Final Fight's a little more fun. Now, I don't know if if because I'm such a Capcom fan and such a Street Fighter fan and the way those two series tie in together, but I still, I think, prefer Final Fight. I'm a big Guy fan, and I'm a big Hagar fan, but I do understand the allure of the Streets of Rage games. They were very high-quality productions. Some of the gameplay elements were very new, like calling in backup. You know, when you call in the cop car for backup and they fire on the stage and everything gets destroyed. I I really, and of course, the, you know, the famous music, the famous soundtrack for those games. But I think especially number two is a really special game. Not as fond of one or three. They seem to always have that. Genesis and SNES always seem to have that they were competitive through the different genres of games. So I always think of Final Fight versus Streets of Rage.
0: You're right. I totally forgot about Final Fight in that in that regard, because I always kind of double and triple up on just Sega seem to double and triple up on that kind of stuff. Although I will say Double Dragon came back, I think, a couple of years ago, one or two years ago. I think it was Double Dragon 4 or Double Dragon Yeah. yeah. I don't know if they're, they're different games. I think it was Double Dragon 4. Horrible. Horrible game. Some bad, and there's some bad Double Dragon games in general. Just really, really bad stuff. I, I downloaded it being like, oh, I think people are being hard on this. I like, you know, I want to play a, a brawler and a beat-em-up. And, you know, with the availability of games like X-Men and The Simpsons and all these other ones that have sure. been ported over time, it's of like, course. well, this one will surely stand out amongst a bunch, and it stood out for the wrong reasons, let's say. <laughs> James Kinslow III wrote into us and said, I started life as a Sega gamer, having been born in 1988 and getting the Genesis for Christmas in 1993. I loved everything from Sonic 1 to 3 and Sonic and & Knuckles to Vector Man and Castlevania Bloodlines. It wasn't until about 1995 or so that my aunt introduced me to the Super Nintendo, with games like Super Mario World, Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, which we just did an episode on, sure. Yoshi's Island, and so on that I became a Nintendo fan. After that moment, I turned away from the Genesis and became a devout Nintendo fanboy. Pokemon in 1998 and later Metroid Prime in 2002, because I had somehow missed Super Metroid, really kept me feeding from Nintendo's hands until the release of the Wii. Once the Wii came out, I jumped ship to Sony with the PS3 and didn't look back that whole generation with the exception of Nintendo's handhelds with the DS and 3DS. I have a Switch now, and I only got it after Pokemon Let's Go, Pikachu, and Eevee were officially announced as I am a diehard Pokemon fan in the way that you, Colin, are a diehard Mega Man and Castlevania fan. Cheers to you both, and keep up the excellent work. Cheers, my friend. Thank you for those memories. I really do think that a lot of it had to do with what you were exposed to and what you what your parents purchased and stuff. And it seems like Mr. Kinslow III's experience was very similar in that vein, which is interesting to me.
1: You know what's interesting, Kyle? Mm. You're, you're not going to agree with this statement, I don't think. But you know what's very divisive as I reflect on Genesis versus SNES? And we haven't gotten this far yet, but basically, guys, I had an SNES. I was a big Nintendo guy, and my best friend PJ had a Genesis. And I played a lot of, you know, I spent a lot of time at his house. It was my home away from home. And we played a lot of Genesis games. He owned quite a bit and we rented them every weekend as well. So I really got a good taste of the Genesis library. And I don't remember that many bad Genesis games, but I remember a lot of SNES games. Now, let me preface this by saying I just, I'm working on Pat Contry's SNES guidebook. Everybody, you know, a lot of you guys know Pat. Shouts out to Pat. We love him. But I played a lot of bad games to review for this book. And there were a lot of shovely games on the SNES. I think Nintendo gets a lot of crap for that. The NES gets a lot of crap for that. But the SNES had a lot of bad games. I only remember playing one really bad game on Genesis, and that was probably and that was Pit Fighter. Now, I might be remembering incorrectly. There might be a lot more, you know, a lot more Genesis games that are really poor, but I don't remember that many, man. I really don't. I think pound for pound. Now, I don't know how the libraries compare the SNES versus the Genesis as far as quantity. Like, I'm not sure how many North American releases there were for one versus the other. But I will say pound for pound that I played a lot more bad SNES games. What do you think about that, Carl?
0: I'm not sure that I'm familiar enough with the Genesis library outside of the Genesis games that I were exposed to. And then the Sega Genesis Classic collections that have come out that are actually really good. That showcase, obviously, the best of the best. Very similar to the NES and SNES classics aren't going to put on their garbage. So I don't have that kind of insight, but what I do want to know in terms of PJ and your experience with Genesis was, was, and I assume the answer is yes, Yeah, PJ was in on Genesis from 89, right? He wasn't the, because Genesis launched again. People forget that Genesis existed for two years without Sonic. Right. And there was an era of which Genesis slash Mega Drive existed. He was in on that early era,
1: right? Yeah. When I met him, I met PJ in 90, late 90, early 91. He already had it, but that doesn't necessarily say a lot. He ha- He did have a Model 1. You know what? He did. He had Altered Beast. That was the original release with the Genesis, right? Was, was Yeah, Alter- Altered
0: Beast, I think, was the original pack. So Altered Beast, must by be... the way, is horrible. Horrible Such game. Such a bad game. So there you go. There's another bad Genesis game. <laughs> I mean, Altered Beast is, I, I would argue, and I have, and we've had funny conversations in the past over the years, but, you know, with my audience, but I think Altered Beast pound for pound might be one of the very worst games ever made. Like, really very horrifying, slow, horrifyingly
1: very bad. Very slow. You know, I remember playing that, Kyle, when the Genesis first came out in Macy's, I was shopping with I believe it was with Aunt Carla and Uncle Mike and I had played that and I remember being so drawn in by it because it really did look like an arcade game to us but then I remember actually picking up and playing the demo unit and being like how sl- like just being struck by how slow it was Like, how slow is this game? Because, you know, as you guys would remember, it's on, you know, it's sort of a side-scrolling platformer, but it's on rails. It it moves very slowly. You know, it sort of scrolls very slowly. And just the gameplay and just, it's almost painful. It looks cool. It looked cool for its time. But once you got past that one minute or two minute of being jazzed by the graphics, it was like, oh my God. You know, what a contrast between that and the first Sonic game. Alter Beast is trash. And that's just an objective fact. Was that an arcade game for them? Yes. That was in the arcade, because yes. I never got to play it in the arcade. Well, lucky you. <laughs> Straw Hat Ninja wrote in us
0: and said, I always had Nintendo consoles growing up, starting with Super Nintendo and continuing from there. I was always jealous of my friends that had a Genesis because I thought he was so, it was so cool. Thank goodness my parents were smart enough and kept me on the Nintendo path, because looking back, Sonic really sucks and Mario is superior in every way. Now, where do you come down? I mean, this is the seminal fight. If we're looking this at is it. If we're looking at the console war between Sega and Nintendo as World War II, this is like Normandy or Battle of the Bulge or one of these very notable things, Mario versus Sonic. To me, from my perspective, there is no contest between these two games, and I have a really hard time understanding from a very genuine place in me, and I always have. I've had a very difficult time understanding why people like Sonic, those three Sonic games, and how anyone has the audacity to compare them to Super Mario World and the Super Mario 3 and the games that were kind of contemporary to it. Yeah. Where do you stand on that? Because it's all about moving fast and speed and showcasing the Genesis's hardware, but if you try to play it like a true platformer, it just doesn't play. You can't play it. I don't get it. I don't understand the (laughs) allure to it at all. There's no option. You know what I mean? (laughs) Now you're and you're talking about Super Mario World versus... Yeah, like, I think Super Mario World versus Sonic 1 or Sonic 2 is a very appropriate, time-centric kind of comparison, and... You're talking Super Mario World still is one of the great games of all time. Like I, it, comparing almost oh, anything to it. It's weird. But comparing something like Sonic, I understand why people are comparing because of the pack ins and all of that. But yeah, where do you stand on that battle?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting, Kyle. Again, like you said, it's, it's really one of the most important, if not the most important aspect of that console war between Sega and Nintendo is their mascots, is you know, their front men. And I understand. Let me say this. I like Sonic. I understand, it totally makes sense to me, even in retrospect, how and why Sega created Sonic to counter Mario, because he was everything Mario wasn't. He was cool, he had an attitude, he was sharp, he was quick, you know, and Mario seemed very tame in comparison, so I understand... You know, when you're thinking about trying to draw in adolescence and when you're thinking about trying to create something cool, quote unquote. Yeah, everything down, not only to Sonic's design, but his color palette, everything. I understand why they created Sonic and it made sense. And I like the Sonic games. But here's the thing of it. There's no comparison between any of the Sonic games and Super Mario World. 95% of gamers would have to concede that fact, even if you're a Sega fan, even if you're a Sonic fan. Super Mario World is one of the best games ever created. Here's the thing where Sega got caught out because they were creating Sonic to counter Mario, and it worked in that regard, but it didn't work. They had no idea they were going to be right when they created Sonic. They had no idea they were going to be up against that game.
0: Yeah, so Genesis comes out westward in 89. I think Sonic comes out in 91, which is when Mario World comes out in the west. So. They knew in terms of the marketing and post-production that it was going to go up against that game. But in terms of its embryonic state, they had no idea what they were going to go up against. I don't want to say it wasn't reciprocal because it certainly was. But it was them putting Sonic against Mario. They did that. And that was the big mistake from Sega's standpoint. Instead of just being like, look at us, we're different.
1: We yes. don't need to compare
0: ourselves to Nintendo. I understand the Nintendo thing and stuff was really big and worthwhile and the commercials and all that. But I have no problem you know, s- you know, know, dunking on them in a way because it's like you are the ones that tried to make it seem like these games were comparable, and they're just not comparable. They're not just not that. anywhere near in the same league.
1: Not even close. Not even close.
0: And I used to get in such fierce fights with people, as a, even as a kid, being like, what are you talking about? You
1: know what's funny, too, Kyle? I remember I, I told you about this before. My friend PJ, his mom rest her soul she was one of the best but she was super into gaming and when i met pj you know that's what it was it was the genesis later on we played you know sega you know 32x and sega cd and dreamcast and everything together but she was really really into the genesis and she was really really good at it and i remember her i told you before like busted my balls about playing sonic because when i first started playing sonic I had never played it before, and, you know, the the goal was to go fast, learn how to go fast through the games, and that was the thing. But I was trying to play it like a Mario game, like, very slow, and she would yell at me, like, you, what are you doing? Like, you can't play like that. <laughs> like, she would get so frustrated watching me play. First of all, and second of all, she was a super, she was a superior gamer to me as well. She was super good at gaming, but she would get so mad at me. But I remember trying to play it like that. I wanted to enjoy it like that, you know. But, you know, shouts out to Sonic 2. It was the first time, I believe, the first time I saw an idle animation. I thought that was really neat. You know, I got it. I got what they were, you know, the sprites were bigger, the character sprites were bigger, which you're not a fan of. But I understood what they were doing with it, but it was unfortunate that they were pitting that game, which is a lot shorter, a lot less immersive. There's no comparison between the two games you're getting. What you're getting in Super Mario World versus especially the first Sonic and i would argue sonic 2 and sonic 3 as well you, there's no parody there one is one thing and one is another thing and there's this unfortunately you could argue which character is cooler or which character is more timeless i think we saw who won that battle but <laughs> you know but you know what i mean the yeah. game like we said the games just there's no there's no parity
0: yeah i agree with you there i I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. It's just it's confounding and perplexing to me. Like the whole the whole situation is just a perplexing situation to me because I want to play platformers in a deliberate way. And I don't feel like there's any deliberate gameplay in Sonic. And I wanted to like it. I think Sonic's probably a cooler character than Mario and a cooler design. And I like Dr. Robotnik. And I liked the music. I remember really enjoying the Sega or the Sonic, you know, uh, sound accompaniment. But yeah. I hear you on that. Ainsley Freeman wrote into us and said, I was one of the few kids that had everything from both companies all at once and was able to have most of everything I wanted from them. I always had friends over and I saw the best and worst of the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. I remember the smear campaigns of Sega before the Super Nintendo came out. I had the inferior Sega Master System, but I love it. There wasn't a better time in gaming for me. The ad campaigns were fucking legendary. Let's talk a little bit about the ads. Do you recall the Sega versus Nintendo ads and and all those? Yeah, talk
1: to me about them and and kind of your remembrance about it. You know what's so funny about it? You know what I was just thinking about? Before I forget to mention, I really want to say, it's so funny about Sega's ad campaign, you know, versus Nintendo and sort of trying to draw in adolescence. you know what struck me about it, Kyle? You and I were right... Now, first of all, I was able to observe it as a... Probably when it started, I was 16, 17 years old, right? So I was a lot older. So I was able to observe this console war and the ad campaign between the two companies, especially Sega's, which was very memorable and be able to observe it and understand what they were doing. But I was too old to fall for it, quote unquote. Now you were too young for it. I would say at that age, if I was 16 and you were five, I would say the perfect age for that ad campaign where they were targeting was like nine, 10, 11, right? So I was observing it from an older kid's standpoint and sort of able to understand, okay, what you're doing here, which made sense. And the ad campaign was really Well, here's the thing. Let me go back by saying this from somebody in my generation. I was born in 73. My first home console was the Atari VCS, you know, slash 2600. So I came through a couple of generations of gaming before there was any notion of a competition between consoles. Basically in the previous two, you know, home gaming iterations, there was no competition. It was, we had the Atari 2600 and then later on we had the NES. Now, Atari 2600, there was other things. There was the ColecoVision. Later on, there was the Atari 5200. But the thing is that there wasn't, you know, 90, whatever it was, I don't know the exact numbers, but 90% of the market share was taken up by one thing. I got the Atari probably in 82 when the price went down to, you know, $125. The ColecoVision at that time was what, $175, $180, $190. There was no parity. A $50, $60 difference was a big thing back then. People didn't have the ColecoVision. I knew about it, but I knew mom and dad weren't going to get me. And that was like 90, 80 90% of people's experience. So we had that one thing. And yes, we the master system was there. We, very few people knew about it. There was no competition. It was complete market share on one console. Were you cognizant of the master system though? Like, Well, the- you know what I found out about it through the Kochers, through Colin's best friend Tim and his family that we talk about a lot on the, on the show. I babysat for those guys and they had the master system, but I don't even remember playing it that much. I want to pick your brain a little bit about the master system when we get to the next thing, but... So what was really striking for somebody of my generation was now with the 16-bit consoles and this, you know, quote-unquote console war between the two companies, this was the first time that we really that it really struck me that we had a choice. You know, not that some people in the past didn't know there was a choice between different things, but this was the first time there was a hard and fast choice, it was the same price, around the same price for the games and this is we had to make a decision. But it always struck me about Sega's ad campaign because if you really think about it, it's very peer pressure especially if you're marketing to a 10, 11-year-old kid. Even if those kids liked Nintendo better, they weren't really able to admit it. If the, you know, the majority of the sentiment is that this is babyish and you're not supposed to like it, of course kids aren't going to like it. When you're sitting in the cafeteria, you want to be with your friends, you want to be on the same page, you want to be cool. So it always strikes me in retrospect as a little mean-spirited because what kid was going to rise up and say, oh no, Nintendo is... You know, because Sega's ad campaign was very, very aggressive. And it actually was a stroke of genius, really. It, it was brilliant. It was really brilliant. And, I, you know, we don't talk about it a lot, but a large part of it was Sega's market share in Japan was poor. You know, the Japanese, in fact, you know, Colin and I will talk about it, Nintendo and NEC with the Turbo Graphics did much better in Japan. So... Their market penetration in North America meant a lot to the company financially. Like they had to get market share in the United States because it was not happening in Japan. It was very important for them. So having an aggressive ad campaign and sort of appealing to older kids was, a, like Colin said, it was a stroke of absolute genius. I remember the ad campaign being a large part of watching MTV. And that always struck me because that was, seemed like it was going right for the jugular, not only of Nintendo, but going right for your audience. And again, being seen on MTV, you sort of have that big kid. I could see Sega as part of their strategy being like, we're going to appeal to the teenagers and we're going to get the younger kids through that as well, which is a stroke of absolute brilliance. Now, what you were a lot younger. So what do you remember of that time? Well, I remember the, some of the
0: commercials and I remember, you know, it's funny because I think in terms of iconography, Genesis and Sega generally in, you know, from 90 or 91 onward to the mid 90s, really had it beat in terms of, and this is weird, and I think people my age might remember this, I think you're a little too old rather to remember this or for this to be relevant, but the entire idea of Sega having a jingle in the beginning of their game, right? Sega! Yeah. Like, people used to say that all the time on the playground and like, yeah, you'd hear that or whatever. And then later it was like, Shut up! There was just something weird about the quirky audio cues that like, you couldn't really replicate that. Like you can replicate, like that ding, you know, that well, like when you throw on Super Mario World or whatever, and it things yeah, it, was and then it goes into the music. yeah, and like it's cool, and it doesn't really matter, but it was in that pre internet or nascent internet era. That kind of stuff really mattered, and I remember that stuff really resonated and pulled. And it was like you either got it or you didn't. But I have to be honest with you, I was ride or die Nintendo man. I really was, and I think. And now, anyway, what
1: made you what made you fall on that side? You know, I had friends that
0: had Genesis, and I played it. You know, and I talked a little bit, about, and I'll talk about my friend Jason in Maine, who was a few years older than me. He just had moved from California to Maine. He had no friends. He was in like eighth grade. I was in fifth grade, and we just became buddies. And he was a really nice guy. The age discrepancy was there. He was like kind of lonely, looking for a friend, and I was kind of a loner and a gamer, and we just kind of understood each other. And He's the one that really exposed me to the positives of Genesis and Saturn. But to me, I kind of just look at it and I'm like, and I know this is a very pretentious kind of thing to say, but it's like, I just understood that gameplay mattered and that nothing that they had on that machine mattered. And I remember the big fight being over Mortal Kombat with the blood. Of course. And the sweat. And I remember getting the, the Mortal Kombat version on SNES, which I think is superior because of the button layout. I do too. And even though there's no blood in it, I remember people like making fun of it and I'm like, but it's better. It's a better version of play. Like it's better. It's just a palette swap. That's all it is. Yeah, you know, I remember course. getting it in fourth grade and people being like, why well, don't, you, don't you want to play it on Genesis? And I'm like, I don't own a Genesis. And no, I'm perfectly fine playing it on a controller with actual buttons on it that I can actually, you know, <laughs> do something with. So I was always very loyal to Super Nintendo. And I think that loyalty came from my loyalty to Nintendo, too. NES is still my favorite console of all time. But I will say to my friend Jason, you know, who's a great guy, I haven't seen him or talked to him in. In probably almost 20 years, I ran into him once in a mall, which was really weird when he was like, I was like eight, 17 or 18. And he was probably like 22 or 23. And that was the last time I saw him. But there was a moment where I was really into fantasy star and really into Shinobi and a few things at his house. And I straight up traded my SNES for his Genesis. Oh, and like our games. And then mom put the kibosh on that and like was like, no, we had to trade back. That. Yeah. And mom, I think mom like really did me a huge solid there, you know? Wow. Because he wanted like I had like Secret of Evermore and Secret of Mana, and Final Final Fantasy II, and Final Fantasy three, and a few others, and he had like three Fantasy Star games, and Shinobi, and a few other things that I wanted, and I never played, so we just straight up traded for it, and mom was like, absolutely not,
1: you know? It's and, very, it really speaks to your sophistication, and I'm not trying to swell your head, as such a young kid, to identify and choose Nintendo over Sega. I would say that about anybody your age during that time, even slightly older kids than you during that time, because Nintendo always had, let's face it, Nothing's ever changed with Nintendo. They always had us with the quality of their own first-party games: Mario, Zelda, Metroid, whatever it was, right? And the quality of those game series that they had—that either no one else either had, or they didn't have the same. They didn't have to the same degree. For instance, Capcom with Mega Man, Konami with Castlevania, and even things like Tecmo with Ninja Gaiden. Sega had some of those games, but not those classic series that Nintendo had. So they always had. No matter what happened, no matter how aggressive Sega was with their ad campaign, Nintendo always knew that they had it with the quality of their first-party games and those key players like Capcom and Konami and having those key things, not only through the NES, but through the Super NES. And it's very sophisticated for a kid to sort of choose a side based on that because it's a lot easier to fall for an ad campaign that's cool and colorful and vibrant and irreverent. And you have to give Nintendo props For always kind of staying the course, you know, knowing what was so great about them and knowing what made them them and not sort of, I don't want to say coming down, you know, to Sega's level, but just kind of staying the course on what and being true to what they were committed to and kind of let Sega do their thing. Not that Nintendo didn't go back, but, you know, they sort of stayed on their own level where Sega sort of took a more, what I would say is a more irreverent Western tract that was, you know, again, brilliant, but that's what Nintendo always had. And they sort of always stayed the course. And I think you have to admire them for that.
0: I remember getting like a little, you know, lip quivery with it. I hate the word quiver, but a little lip quivery with it sometimes, you know, with people where I was like, I just don't understand what you don't see, you know, like I just feel like this is a superior product. I always felt that I always was proud that I'd never succumbed to the peer pressure at all, with the exception of that one thing with Jason where I wanted to swap because I'd never we didn't get Ninja Gaiden games anymore. And he had Shinobi, which was which was really great, you know, And and, and it's not to say there aren't great Genesis games. It's just. I don't know. I just, it, it always seemed like an imposter to me. Like the the console always seemed like an imposter. Like it just wasn't, it was this ornate thing with beautiful, you know, graphics and blast processing and all, you know, whatever. And it wore its 16 bit thing on its sleeve and all that kind of stuff. And it had a headphone jack and yeah. it was all this, you know, all this stuff where I'm like, okay, like, but I just remember kind of being let down every time I played it in terms of like the gameplay. Like it was fun for a moment, but it didn't have that stickiness. And I didn't have any concept of first or third party at that time. I didn't know what that meant. You know, it was just that you knew that, well, we have Link to the Past. You have Beyond Oasis, I guess. We have Super Mario World, which is a good game. But we have Super Mario World. You have Sonic. We got Street Fighter early and we can play it on a complete controller. You play it in some botched fucking Version of it a year late with a three-button controller. Yeah, you know? and they
1: got like champ. They went right to championship edition yeah. or something. It was really odd.
0: I remember those kind that kind of ping pong effect. And I'm like, we're getting all the Square Enix games. You get zero. Oh, Square mm. Soft at the time. You get zero Square Soft games. You get zero Quintet games. You get zero Enix games. You don't have Act razor You don't have anything like that. You don't have Secret of Mana. You don't have Secret of Evermore. You don't have you know Seventh Saga. Oh my god. You know you don't have any stuff. of that. You don't have Lufia. You don't have Lufia two. And like the more you stack it up, I'm like, yeah, there are great games on there that people really liked. I know Rise Star is one of the games that people really like. Obviously, Vector yeah. Man is another game that's really great. In terms of platformers, in terms of Sheen and all that kind of stuff, I would assume Genesis had Super Nintendo pretty heartily beat at, at that time. In terms of those, they they were eager and chasing after. Well, Kid Chameleon and stuff like that. They were chasing yeah. after Rocket
1: Knight Adventures. I mean, right. You know, which was a Konami thing. But Konami didn't really market it that much, that well. Right.
0: Exactly. They were chasing the platformer. And I think that in terms of that, they probably won pretty handily. But as more of a role playing game and kind of simulation game strategy guy, I mean, there was not a whole lot going on there, which is why when I finally discovered Fantasy Star Fantasy Star Two, not knowing at the time that Fantasy Star, the original one was a master system game yeah. that I still have not really played that much. Me either when I discovered that I'm like holy shit a sci-fi role-playing game I never even knew that was possible for some reason I was always like science fiction is just this other thing and role-playing games are always fantasy and spells and swords and staffs and shields and absolutely so that was what got me excited but that was an ephemeral thing like I just I saw through it and there was just no organi- organization there. By the time Saturn came out, and you read a lot about Sega, and you just realize they were supporting all these pieces of hardware, and they just couldn't keep their shit together. They were just way too ahead of themselves. I think if they just thought smaller and stuck with the Genesis longer and marinated the Saturn longer, it could have gone differently for them. But it Because they were building something. They were building something.
1: Great point. Great And then point. they just
0: they let it get killed because it got too confusing. It's like, oh, these guys have a CD. We need a CD add-on. Oh, we have a 32X, and we have a Sega CD. And, we, and I'm like... I knew people with those. And it's like, well, this works on this, but not this. And you need to plug it into this. And very strange. And meanwhile, Super Nintendo was just Super Nintendo. That was it. Now they had Satellaview and stuff like that in Japan, but we never got that. So it was just much easier to comprehend.
1: Yeah, they kind of split themselves in too many directions and tried to become too many things. And we talk about that a lot on the podcast. When you don't know what you want to be and you're trying to be too much, you sort of lose your identity. And Collins, right, the Squaresoft thing, that can't be overstated. Square games on Super NES, especially if you were a slightly older, sophisticated gamer, you had to play Chrono Trigger you had to play the final fantasy games you had to play these things you know they were really important i mean that for me those games when those games came out that's when it stopped becoming a competition it was like you have to play these games they're must play games earthbound right you have to they're just must play games you have to have it you know kyle just before we continue i just wanted to ask your question you know a question on you for you about this if you had this resonance as well as a kid In retrospect, it seems to me the SNES slash Super Famicom, but especially, particularly the SNES, I would say probably thinking about all the console generations, probably from the hardware itself, the console itself, to the controller, to the games, physical quality, the physical quality of those things, the hand feel, the quality of the controller, the quality of the console, the way the console was heavy, the cartridges with the plastic case, for me... Also, the Super Nintendo just felt like a nicer built thing. It almost had a German engineering feel to it. It felt tight. It felt together. It felt like, you know, the Genesis was a lot lighter. It was clinkier. You know what I mean? Things broke on it. You know, I have a Genesis Model 1 and it's still in great shape. But you know what I mean? It seemed like a lot less fragile. Was that something you thought about as a kid?
0: I thought more about it as an adult when I bought my first, you know, Genesis. And not as an adult, I guess I was a teenager, but I bought a Genesis and you just kind of see it. There's like, why is there a volume thing on the console? It's like this flabby little thing. Why do you have like all these moving parts that can can break it? Like the SNES, the standard model SNES is just so basic. It's so simple.
1: Yeah. The build quality.
0: And I think, you know, we can't understand or understate rather the jump from NES in the West to SNES and how the SNES just worked better. The games worked better. And obviously we didn't realize that in Japan with the Famicom was top loading. So they didn't have any of the problems that the NES's problems of making the games read the 79 pin, connect, pin connectors, or whatever that thing's called, was a uniquely NES problem that was ameliorated later with the top loader. But by that point, SNES was three years old. So exactly, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I think that they were always kind of drawn back and kind of kept it simple right on through N64 and GameCube. I don't think things really got truly complicated until the Wii. And, you know, we know how that all went. <laughs> Matt Korolowski wrote in and said, I never had a Sega system beside the battery eating Game Gear, but going over to a friend's house and playing with those controllers always felt like a different world. I was always glad I had Nintendo, though. It's not even a contest between Mario and Sonic. Well, we already covered that. But what were your thoughts
1: about Game Gear? I liked the Game Gear. I thought I was never a fan of the Game Boy, the original Game Boy, because I just felt so frustrated that I couldn't see it. You know, you seemed like you had to just be in the perfect lighting, and in retrospect, some of the games are magnificent and they're awesome, but. I never liked at all the Game Boy. So the fact that the Game Gear, and again, my wife, wife, who is my girlfriend, we had just met at the time, like somebody left it at her house that moved away or something. And she was like, do you want this? She didn't even know what it was. And I think it just had columns. I think that was the only game that it had. But I always liked the fact that it was just plug and play and you could see it. And it was the first handheld that I remember playing that you could actually just, it felt like a console, just the screen was smaller. But the battery life was insane, and I didn't have an AC adapter adapter for it. So that was my, and I don't think I played that many games on it. You know, I think I played Sonic, Columns, a couple of other things. I still have it. You know, it's cool to have on the shelf, but I never really got into it you yeah, know, beyond that, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I, I knew a couple guys that had it. I was a uh, mid Game Boy adopter. I don't think I got my Game Boy until 93. I got it when Mega Man 4 came out, and I bought it at Bradley's, which is a defunct oh. now retailer kind of relegated to the Northeast, I believe. And they. I was just, there was a Mega Man game there and I'm like, well, I must play this. And so I ended up, you know, saving up and buying the Game Boy as well and being exposed to that. And yeah, the, backlight, the lack of backlight and stuff was, it was incredibly limited, but it does speak to people knowing inherently that like Flash over substance never seems to work. It just never worked. It didn't work on Genesis for Super Nintendo and it was even worse when it came to Game Boy. First of all, the disparity between what they can do is worse, but the sales were even worse because people are like, we don't, want this yeah and it's it's really fascinating that they just rode that thing and you know just rode it and rode it and rode it it's and amazing. made a lot of great games on it you know although i will say that a lot of people love links awakening which i find to be a lacking zelda game compared to the others i, I never liked that game i don't know why <laughs> i remember being like profoundly disappointed with it for some reason yeah yeah i am just like i don't i don't understand it Luke Tucker wrote in and said I was a Nintendo kid growing up whose Sega experience was limited mostly to sports games over at two friends' house who had a Genesis. Recently, however, I got listening to audiobooks at work via Audible and got my favorite gaming book to date, Console Wars. I absolutely loved it and gained a greater appreciation for Sega of America. Can you talk about your experience reading or listening to Console Wars and if it changed any of your opinions on Sega at this time frame in the early to mid-90s? Well, Blake Harris, the author of Console Wars, is a personal friend of mine. You guys can go listen to a fireside chat we did just a couple of months ago, and he's writing a new book that comes out, I think, in February about VR and about Oculus and Facebook and all of that, which so is supposed awesome. to be really great. And I'm looking forward to reading an early copy of that when he gets me one. So I want to say that I know Blake Harris. I'm not trying to pimp his book. I have nothing to gain from that. But it is a great book. And I highly recommend reading it. And I learned a great deal from that, I, I especially from the Sega perspective. It's so nice. Oh, yeah. When you compare it to like Game Over and certain books that are about Nintendo, these seminal Nintendo books and Game Over was written 25 years ago now. Good book, too. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's excellent. And excellent there's a revised book. version with some revisions by a guy named Andy Eddy, who's a who, who's kind of a games media OG that I used to work with. Nice guy. But for me, I read, read Console Wars when I was at IGN. He came and you know we, we went over the book. I think I did an interview with him there and wrote about it. But I was really quite smitten with it. And I really came out with a lot of respect for the players at Sega that really had to twist and turn in order to make this thing work knowing the mega drive was failing in japan and that they needed something western centric and western developed and that was kind of unheard of and that they would then ping pong in the opposite direction and that there were people at sega smart enough to listen to like tom Kalinski and these guys yes. and and to realize that like they're they're on to something now i think they got a little too frayed and a little too crazy in the mid 90s and i think that that it all started to fall apart just as quickly as it came together for them which is unfortunate but yeah, it's a great book, and I learned a great deal from reading it, and I highly recommend that people check it out.
1: Well, Kyle, I'll tell you that I don't know Blake personally. I've read the book twice, all the way through, and it's wonderful. And you'll, ne- like Colin said, you'll never. Pro- I would argue you'll never learn more about the console wars, especially from Sega's perspective, than from reading this book. The people at Sega were incredibly candid about it. They really lay it all out. And what's fascinating about the whole thing is Colin already mentioned it a little bit. The Japanese faction of Sega giving the you know sort of handing the baton to the West and letting them run with it is something that was unheard of during, you know from that time and probably any Japanese company and Nintendo's Nintendo of Japan has never given that power to Nintendo of America I would argue to that degree you know why because you know Colin said the Mega Drive was failing in Japan they needed it it was a Hail Mary I wish I remember the ad agency that ran that they worked with I always forget. But what's always really striking to me is that Sega chose a younger and hungrier and sort of hipper and more irreverent ad company, ad agency, rather than go with an Ogilvy Mather or a DDB Worldwide or something like that, which was always very striking to me. And just that for Sega to be relying on this kind of known quantity or unknown quantity compared to the big boys was also very striking. And the ad agency had a lot of Skin in the game as well, and that was always a lot of fun to see them succeed on that level. See, because everybody succeeded on that level when that ad campaign became a success, and that book is just covers all that, and it's fascinating. It's a fascinating read.
0: Yeah, it's it's awesome. Highly recommended to go check it out. You can buy it on Amazon and elsewhere, and support our friend Blake by doing that. And yeah, excited to see what's next for him. And yeah, the entire idea of Sega does what Nintendo or Genesis does what Nintendo is is really a brilliant thing, and. It was totally antithetical and remained antithetical to the way Nintendo deals with its competitors up to this day because the weird ad campaign surrounding Fortnite that included both Microsoft and Nintendo. When I saw that where it's like play together, or I forget what it is, it's like play nice together or something like that. And I was like, what in the fuck is this? And the reason that they did that was because it was a thumb in the eye of Sony. Right. But you could tell that Sony with PlayStation when it was their turn to kind of go up against Nintendo and you know, and Sega that they took a page out of that go directly at Nintendo, just go directly at them. It works. And it did work. And Nintendo just refuses to really ever acknowledge that. And that's not the way they play. And I do respect that. I do respect Nintendo's very bureaucratic and very orderly way. We, when we talk about Nintendo games and Nintendo consoles in previous episodes, we often note that a lot of the people that work there work there in the 80s, like there's very little turnover. It's like a family and kind of like a little bit of a cult and they just deal with things a little bit differently. So I like that dissonance between the coverage and the thing is, is though that when you play aggressive like that, you win in the short term and you lose in the long term. And Sony didn't so much learn that lesson, but Sega sure did.
1: That's well said, Kyle. What did you think of the Fortnite branded Switch? I was shocked to see that in the store. I didn't know about that.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that either. But I'm not surprised because like, Fortnite what? is so important to the to the buoyancy, I should say, of these consoles surviving because everyone's playing it. Like. Fortnite is totally agnostic. You can play it anywhere, so you need to do something in order to stand out. So Nintendo is, you know, making its play, and I think it's smart. I, I couldn't even believe that Fortnite would be on Switch. I mean, five years ago, I don't think Fortnite would ever be on a Nintendo platform. So strange. And they twisting. You know, Nintendo was responsible help with, with in helping inadvertently twisting Sony's arm to let people play cross-platform. Sony like wanted nothing to do with that until that ad, came, that weird ad and stuff like that. I was like, this is so weird. It's you know, strange. And things are getting strange. Like Minecraft is still on PlayStation consoles, and Microsoft owns Minecraft. So it's a, it's a weird thing out there. I'm still waiting for Nintendo to go third party, but it's never going to happen, I guess. Dorian Brown wrote in and said, Nintendo and Sega was uh, always an interesting battle. The Dreamcast to this day remains one of my favorite systems of all time. Do you think there was anything else Sega could have changed with the Dreamcast to survive, or was the writing just on the wall? I must say for myself that Dreamcast is my favorite Sega platform, and I bought Dreamcast when it came out. It was the first time I really a console came out and I really had the money to buy it right away. And I loved it. I thought it was awesome. And I remember how revolutionary... I'll never forget it. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it through a modern lens. But I remember playing NBA 2K1. It was the one with Allen Iverson on it. Philadelphia 76ers on Allen Iverson on it. I was playing it in the fall or winter of 2000. And I was playing it online on a console. And I remember being like, this is insane. I don't understand how this is possible. That I have a phone line hooked into my console. And I'm on SegaNet. And I'm playing... An NBA game this was, you know 18 or 19 years ago now and Dreamcast was just ahead of its time and, and a revolutionary sort of thing but also very easy to pirate on yeah comically easy to, to get and it will run like anything it was comical and I think beyond that I think they released it too soon I think there was just too much murmuring about PlayStation 2 and about the next Nintendo console and I think it was just game over for them I think that it was just their time was up as it were
1: yeah I don't know. I always appreciated the very Japanese flavor that they came over to the West with that console. It always spoke to me of like, I'm always very grateful that I was as old as I was when these 16-bit console wars started because I was an appreciator of both things. I saw the difference between both things and I appreciated both for what they were best at. And Sega always seemed like it had that sort of more Japanese flavor with, you know, games that I was really into back then, you know, like the Battle Mania games slash troubleshooters and Kendo Rage and the games that sort of... I felt like weren't really available necessarily on the Super Nintendo. I always loved that sort of, that it felt like big kid, not in the, not in the sense of the Western ad campaign, but just in the sense of the games that they were offering and the more anime flavor to it and stuff like that. And I felt like they brought the Dreamcast over with that a little bit, you know, and I remember like the Choo Choo Rocket commercials and stuff like that. And I really appreciated that. I thought I dug that, that they were kind of going that way with it. It seemed like a good fit in the late nineties as well, but I never owned a Dreamcast. My best friend had it. So I was able to play over there. You know.
0: And in fact, he imported it. So we were playing it early, like the spring and summer of 1999. We were playing it. It wasn't until September 1999 that it came out in the West. But that's what sold me on it was Crazy Taxi. And later on, you had Power Stone and you had, you know, there's a lot of great stuff on there. Skies of Arcadia. So I liked the Dreamcast. But what's sad about it is that it was, a you know, it was aborted before it it was even really going. Like by March or April 2001, it was completely discontinued. So. It really only had about two or two and a half years on the market, and it makes you wonder what Sega was thinking, not being capitalized enough on the back end and fluid enough to be able to support it long term, because it might have been able to stick around a little bit longer, and they might have been able to make like a different mark of it to make it you know, piracy-less. It's similar to PSP, although not to the same extent where a lot of people bought it because they could fuck with it, and that's not really a great sign for your console, but I liked it. I liked the Dreamcast a lot, and I was glad that I owned it, and I had a
1: lot of fun experiences with it. Would you have liked to seen one more hardware iteration by Sega after the Dreamcast, or you think it ended in a good spot for them?
0: I think it ended in a good spot, considering like they were able to kind of wipe away the failure of the Saturn. The Saturn was, I think, a big disappointment to virtually everybody. Yeah, even if you're a big, big Sega fan, there there are great games on there like Panzer Dragoon Saga, and I think there's like Shining in the Darkness or something like that is on there, but or whatever the hell it's called. But there are a few games on there that are worthwhile. But that left such a bad taste in people's mouths that I think that would have been a sad note for them to go out on. But what was even sadder was when, you know, following Dreamcast demise, when you finally saw Sega just eat shit and start putting their games on Nintendo consoles and then, you know, kind of emblematic of Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games and all those kinds of things, like things that were totally unthinkable, just completely unthinkable. It's like, wow, what a concession, you know, Absolutely. You finally just totally conceded. And then Sonic being, you know, many years later and Smash Brothers and stuff like that. And now it's like it's very it's like, strange. It's a, it's a very gone. it's a long time ago. You know, it is. It is. Jason Bola wrote into us and said, any games you guys missed out on that you have since jumped into? Standout Genesis games for me were the Fantasy Star series, Beyond the Oasis, Landstalker, Dynamite Heady, Castlevania Bloodlines, and Rystar. I forgot about Dynamite Heady. That was another one people really liked. I'm not sure I even know what Landstalker is. I don't I remember don't know
1: that I not either, actually. I'll look that up.
0: Beyond the Oasis is that Zelda clone. That was really very good. I thought it was Beyond Oasis, but I guess it was Beyond the Oasis. And Fantasy Star, obviously. You know, the thing with Fantasy Star is I just cannot believe that they've never released Fantasy Star 5. I have no idea why they wouldn't just release Fantasy Star 5. Fantasy Star 4 came out in 1995, so it's been 23 years since we've gotten a core game, and they made it. You know, very cleverly, Fantasy Star Online was a very clever game on Dreamcast and later on the kind of GameCube, PS2, Xbox ecosystem or that era anyway, and still goes on today in some places People with Fantasy Star it. Online too. But it's just weird that they, on one hand, had the foresight to be like, "We're going to make this into an MMO on consoles in a very nascent time for MMOs, even on PC." So that was a really forward-thinking thing, but that they kind of just abandoned what Fantasy Star was. People love Fantasy Star. Oh, and, it's so good, dude! And I don't understand why they just never been like, "We're going to make Fantasy Star five. We're going to make a fifty million million you know, triple A Japanese role playing game.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Even dating all the way back to the master system. If you look at the first fantasy star game, it did a lot. It actually introduced that anime vibe, the first person dungeons, the sci-fi elements, the female heroine. It was really special. I don't think people re- were ready for it. You know, I think that if you discovered it back then in its first iteration when it came out. But yeah, I always really appreciate the fantasy star series. For me, I think the only I had such a great exposure to the Genesis during its heyday. But I never we, I never played Rocket Knight. And so that's a new one for me that I had missed the first time around. That's a lot of fun. And I will say the Master System, I'm going to probably go back and collect for the console. I did a lot of research since we knew we were going to do this show, eBay and see. It's a little pricey. There's only 114 North American games as far as I know. And some of the games are particularly pricey. But I think it's kind of worth jumping into. It sort of has that mystique. I really like that brand of... You know, it had a very specific brand and a very specific style, both aesthetically and in the sound, that was quite different than the NES. The color palette's a little different, color palette's a little bigger, I think, than the NES. So it has a certain stylistic, you know, mystique that I sort of missed the first time around. So I'm really particularly interested in the Master System. I think I'm going to probably get into it. The controller's a little funky, but you know what's interesting about the Master System, Kyle? It seems like the first shot fired in the console wars... And I don't know, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about this, because if you just look at the look of the console, how sleek it is, how sleek the light phaser is, everything's black, it seems a little older, it seems a little more sophisticated And the look of the hardware and stuff. I don't know if that was something that Sega did purposely, but it seemed like the first shot fired in the console wars before the console wars were even a thing.
0: Do you know anything about that? I don't know anything about that, but I know, I mean, I know that the, I think the iteration that like our friend Tim, the master system had, had that like maroon trim on it right, like that, Yeah, and the built-in, I think Afterburner was built into it, and yeah, what I liked the most about it was the foresight, which they followed with Genesis, which was to give you game cases, like cases that you actually left your games in, and I liked how they all had, like, that, those horizontal and vertical blue lines, like it was in a grid, and, like, every game was identified that way, which I thought was cool, like, it was something identifiable that publishers did on a publisher level with NES, like Silverback, Konami cartridges, for instance, and all those kinds of things, but not something that was brought forward, like, and Tension did that kind of stuff, too, but there was, there was a continuity, and like it, it felt like a family, like a small ecosystem. And I remember thinking that even as a kid.
1: Yeah, it stood out on yeah. the shelves. You knew exactly what it was. It gets a lot of shit now, you know, the branding for and the marketing for Master System with the clip art over, the, you know, but you had that grid. And again, yeah, those plastic clamshell cases, that was awesome.
0: And there were a few really great. I mean, Alex Kid is widely considered to be a great game. And, you know, the, the 8-bit Sonic port that came to both Master System
1: and to Game Gear is supposed to be pretty good. It's impressive. It's impressive a lot of and you know other ports other arcade ports that were 8-bit arcade ports like Operation Wolf like they look really impressive on the master system they really knew how to it seemed like they knew how to squeeze everything out of that console more so than any other console I could think of during its heyday from early on the game you know like you said the Alex Kidd games Alex Kidd and Shinobi World is like one of my favorite games I love that game. And again, like I was really exposed to the master system, thank goodness, through the virtual console, you know, on the Wii and later on the Wii U. So I was able to go back and play a lot of the games that I missed. And yeah, I'm really intrigued by the console. I think I'm going to, uh, you know, there's a Ninja Gaiden game. It's weird. You know, there's some weird stuff on there.
0: The Ninja Gaiden game that I want that's kind of apparently pretty rare is that Ninja Gaiden trilogy on Super Nintendo. Yeah,
1: I got to review that for the book. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've never played it. I will tell you, spoiler alert. They tried to make graphical upgrades. They're negligible. You probably won't even recognize them. The sound sounds fucking awful. It's a complete embarrassment. They butchered it. Because you know how good those mu- the music mm. is in those NES games. And that game is very expensive, that trilogy, for SNES for some reason. Yeah, I don't think they printed many copies. You're better off playing the NES versions. Spoiler alert for my review in the, NES guidebook, the SNES guidebook. <laughs>
0: One other thing that I want to give Sega a shout out to, though, in terms of forward thinking, was Sega Channel. Which was this idea of hooking your Genesis and your TV into basically your cable, and you were able to like kind of—I don't know if it was—I don't know exactly how it technically worked. You were downloading games or gaining access to games, and I remember I knew a few people that had it cursorily, but never really got to mess around with it. But I know that the one game that was on there that I think was later put on cartridge in Europe and maybe in Japan was Wily Wars, which was Mega Man One, Two, and Three remade. And I forgot about that. really wanted that. I still have never played them. And it almost looks like a little sacrilegious. Like, I'm like, I don't know. If I, I to know. Do
1: Mega Man on Sega. That's weird.
0: But I've always really been intrigued by that. And I remember seeing Sega Channel commercials. And it was funny. I was I watch old old Howard Stern clips on YouTube with Aaron a lot. And, you know, we like to laugh and guffaw at them. They're hysterical. And there's this one thing when they're still at K-Rock where, you know, howard is mad at you know baba buoy because he they got like something from sega to see if they wanted an, an endorsement and they didn't but he still used the sega channel stuff and oh yeah it's so it's so it's just it was just a funny random that's thing cool. like, that's so funny that's you know,
1: a snapshot in time definitely
0: shane hendrickson wrote in and said what were your favorite nintendo versus sega commercials i remember one that i assume was a game gear commercial where a guy is sitting on a park bench playing his game boy disappointed in the graphics but then he sees a dead squirrel on the ground so he picks it up and whacks himself over the head with it and declares oh colors Almost 30 years later, and the memory of that commercial still makes me laugh. Well, we already went into some of the ads, Shane, but I didn't want to make you think that I ignored you because I loved you very much.
1: That whole campaign was so memorable.
0: Patrick Mullally wrote into us and said the Dreamcast and N64 were both on the market at the same time, at least for a few years. Both weren't terribly successful relative to Sony, but which of those two consoles do you guys remember the most fondly? So he's curious. Do you dig and remember Dreamcast or N64 the most fondly? I think I know the answer to this. Dreamcast. Yeah, I'm with you there. Easily, I'm with you there. I like the N64, but I mean
1: Marvel vs. Capcom. I mean, you know, you guys know I'm a huge Capcom fan. I'm a huge fan of the fighting games, so the 2D fighting games. So, yeah, for sure,
0: I agree. There's no competition. And shout
1: out to Power Stone.
0: (laughs) Fantastic, (laughs) so good. (laughs) And uh, like I said earlier, also Crazy Taxi. Take me to the Pizza Hut, of course. Matthew Clarkson wrote in and said, "As a kid in the 90s, my parents bought me a Genesis because it was the new hip thing. I never owned an SNES, neither did my best friend. I remember going to my cousin's house and he and his friend had one and playing, we're playing Mario Kart. I might be a crazy person, but I didn't really seem to be it didn't really seem to be all that great to me. Even now with emulators and the virtual console, I just can't seem to be interested in it. Am I crazy? What games should I try?" I will say this in terms of the Super Nintendo Super Mario card, I completely agree with you. I never understood why people like that game. I still don't understand why people oh, like really? it. Oh, really? You didn't like it? I just don't. I, I know it was very revolutionary for its time in terms of, you know, allowing, I think with the multi-tap, you can have four players playing at the same time. Yeah, you can I play against so. the computer as well. But I actually went back and looked at it recently and played it a little bit at someone's house. They had it hooked up and. I'm like, I don't really understand why this is good. And I got to be honest with you. I never really liked any of the Mario Kart games. It's just not Mm. for me. Like, I just don't like Mario Kart that much. Mm. I don't find it that much fun. It's a rubber band fest. And it's, you know, I don't think that fundamentally that's a good design philosophy. If you're winning, you're winning. Right. Bad things mathematically shouldn't happen to the person consistently in first place and good things happening to the person in last place. It's boring. I appreciate your honesty. Now, what's the newest one you've played? Did you play the one on Wii U, I guess, which was a port, I think, of Mario Kart 8. Yeah. So that's the last one I played on. Okay,
1: all right. So you're up there. Because I think the newest one is still the enhanced version of eight, right?
0: I I don't know. I for, think so. For Switch. and by the way, I mean eight sold like thirty million copies. So, so it's, it's good it's, game. It's not that I'm in the majority because I'm certainly not. I'm not a racing fan. I'm not a car racing fan. There are certain racing games that have resonated with me with, with me over time. I used to love the Hot Pursuit Need for Speed oh, spinoff my God, games. Oh they're so good. I where love the cops them. would chase you and stuff. I used to really love those games. They're but great games. I'm not a car guy, and not that Mario Kart is a car guy's. No, game. No, sure, but I know what you mean. But it's worth saying that I did take to similar analog games that Nintendo released. Like I'm a big. Mario Golf fan. I'm a big Mario Tennis fan. I'm especially a big Mario Golf fan. I love Mario Golf. Love, love, love. It. Starting with N64, especially Tolstall Tour on GameCube. A phenomenal game. Absolutely phenomenal game. But, well, you should have it. I have my GameCube collection, I think, so it should be in there somewhere. I think I have it, yeah. It's not that I'm like against this whole like, oh, Nintendo All-Star sort of cast and you're playing whatever it is you're playing. I just don't like kart racing and that segue to when You know, Sony did their kart racers with Mod Nation Racers and all that kind of stuff. A little big planet karting. I just don't care for those games. So I I think it's more my taste than the game itself.
1: I totally hear you. I'm the same. You know, I feel the same way about the Smash Brothers games. I don't get it. You know, I just don't get it. and And I tried. And, you know, shout out before we forget to mention shout out to and you guys could correct me if I'm wrong. Nintendo's very memorable ad campaign for The first Smash Brothers game where, you know, the puppet version characters or the people dressed in suits as the characters beating the crap out of each other. That's the first Nintendo ad campaign that I remember being particularly irreverent. I'm like, holy shit, that's Donkey Kong beating the hell out of Pikachu and mm-hmm. Mario th- Mario beating the hell out of Yoshi. Do you, you remember yeah, that? Yeah, no, of course. So it, memorable. It was them,
0: wasn't it them like, like running through the field holding hands, but then it cut to them and they were all beating the shit yeah, out, of so other, so. beating the yeah. out of each other? Yeah, so now they're beating the crap out of each other. It all awesome. seemed very yeah.
1: Sega-esque to me. Yeah. And I was always very struck by that ad campaign and surprised by it. And I still remember it. But very similar thing with you with Mario Kart. I don't understand the Smash Brothers games. I don't see it. I, I love the fact that you could... that. The variety characters you have: Pac-Man and Ryu and Sonic and the, the whole cast of Nintendo characters, and now
0: and seventeen Fire Emblem characters that are indistinguishable from one fire another.
1: Emblem characters that we don't know, <laughs> or at least to my, because I'm pretty ignorant. I just
0: like how fire. they're just like they announced it. And it's like you know all these guys, and then it's like oh, and this guy is now in it. I'm like he is exactly the same <laughs> as everyone else. Like woo! There.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and now, of course, Simon and Richter, which is going to be exciting. Yeah, I didn't realize is Simon the main character and Richter is the Echo. I think that's what it is. Mm. I think that's what it is. It's Richter and Alucard, right? As the
0: oh, Alucard's like an assist. He's right? like There's an assist a, in assist. there, and it's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I was so stoked when I saw that. Just from a graph, like just from a graphical
1: perspective, I was like, oh man, they did such a good job with that. Trailer. I love it. With the, Who knows? Maybe, with maybe that'll wit- be my hook into the series, and I'll try. But I, what's the newest one for Switch? We have it. And I'm just so confused by it, and and it could be because I'm oh such the a- Smash
0: Brothers on Switch it comes out this fall, I think, doesn't it? Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Is
1: it on Switch or is it on Wii U? I think it's
0: on. I think they ported the, the newest one I played. I think they ported the Wii one to. Or no, no, they didn't port it. I think this the Wii U got the new one and the and they're porting that to Switch.
1: Okay, and, and, okay, but
0: it'll have every character from every game in it.
1: Wow, holy cow, it's gonna
0: be massive. But, so I'm, I'm excited about that because I actually really liked playing as the Ice Climbers and they removed them. They're starting cute. In, in, Oh, so
1: now they're putting them back in
0: Brawl and they're putting them back okay. and. I started, you know, I like playing as the Ice Climbers. I like King Day to Day. He's cool. He's awesome. He looks like a psychopath. That's why I, I love him so much. He just looks like an absolute maniac. <laughs> he's awesome. And he's a little slow, but I like playing as him. And then Mario, I think, is really
1: fun. To Mario is cool. I like that little Mac is in there. There's so many cool There's so many cool characters. It's just I think I'm confused by the gameplay because so, I was really steeped and was kind of came up in that traditional 2D fighter, especially the Capcom games and the SNK game fighting games. That I think it's just a little confusing to be on multiple planes and multiple levels and stuff like that. I think it's a little weird for me, but who knows? Maybe I just have to get acclimated to that.
0: Yeah. And it's all about damage, but it's also
1: about ringing out, right?
0: Yeah. It's also about increasing damage to make it more likely that your hit smashes people off the screen, basically. You know, it's an interesting idea. Very right? Nintendo centric You know, Nintendo has to be different. And they came up with that different solution. <laughs> true. true. I remember playing the first Smash Brothers on N64 at my friend Corey's house. When I was in high school, we used to play Mario Party and Smash Brothers and all those kind of N64, you know, multi-controller games and being like, well, this is pretty interesting. And I remember at that time, I think there were like 12 or 14 characters in the game. And I think this one's going to have like 70 or something like that. It's insane. I like that they're bringing everyone back in, but I feel like that's a, it's not lazy. It's inherently and literally not lazy to do that. But it is also incredibly lazy to do that. Like get rid of things a little bit here. You don't need.
1: Like I, Mr. Game and Watch. Well, ah. is not the strat? Well, Mr. Game and Watch is a weird one, but it not the strategy to kind of suck everybody in whatever you're a fan of? It's going to be in there. So oh, cert-
0: that's certainly it. But it's going to create I guarantee you the balance problems in this game, no matter how hard Namco yeah, works on it, is gonna it. it's going to be out of control. And I was always disappointed when Mega Man was put in the Wii U version and I I, my, I just can't play is Namco the developer for the Smash
1: games. Yeah, I, think I so. never knew that. OK,
0: I think Bandai Namco's creating creating not since the very beginning, but I think starting with the one on Wii U. OK, Smash Brothers U whatever interesting. it's called. I don't remember exactly what
1: it's called. Interesting. Someone will write in
0: and correct us, I'm sure. Christopher Biesinger wrote in and said back during the SNES versus Genesis days, my friend and I actually had discussions about which was the better console. He was the Sega kid. Eventually he got the Super Nintendo and saw the light. My question to <laughs> the two of you, what games do you think showed that the Genesis was a worthy rival? To Super Nintendo side note Saturn never gets enough love I know it sold a paltry 9 million but it had an amazing catalog of first-party games plus it was the best place to play fighting games absolutely you're, you're I was surprised that you don't take umbrage with that because the fighting games that you were playing on Saturn are like virtual fighter and a lot of 3D
1: fighters that Saturn also had all the 2D ports of Capcom's fighting games right mm, and Street yeah, Fighter and too. Darkstalkers the Street Fighter series and the Darkstalkers series are two of my favorite fighting franchises so and I knew that Saturn always had really beautiful versions of those but i have to admit i haven't played it i haven't played them on saturn very often i only knew one guy an old roommate of mine ducky had the saturn and i don't know if i knew anybody else that owned it i was sort of flirting with getting the japanese saturn a couple years ago you know not even a year ago or so people were sort of i was kind of picking people's brain on twitter about it but i have very little experience with the saturn
0: yeah i do too it's like probably one of my least favorite or least played consoles but I remember your friend Ducky had Panzer Jangoon Saga, and I remember, did. I remember playing it at your apartment, and that was like my first exposure to that kind of game. Justin Mikowski wrote in and said, one of the things I actually really missed about the great console war era. Okay, let's be honest. Sega got its ass handed to it was how different games were depending on whether they were on the SNES or the Genesis. It made me want to seek out both versions to compare and contrast. Since all three of us are Nintendo kids, was there a certain port or game that you felt was actually better on the Genesis? For me, it would be Disney's Aladdin. I'm sure Dagan would appreciate the animation quality, considering when the game was made. That game
1: game is beautifully done.
0: I think the Lion King is another one of the games that's considered better on Genesis. I must say, though, Dagan, that the games that were unequivocally better on Genesis were the EA sports games. I don't think anyone would possibly deny that. And I was a big sports gamer. Yeah, you And are. I played those on Super Nintendo. I played Madden and NHL every year on, especially NHL, on SNES. And I bought an NHL series on SNES right on through NHL 98, which came out in 1997, even after I had a PlayStation because I didn't want to play like the 32-bit version of the game where it's like a little more 3D and stuff. I just didn't want to play it, so I held off as long as possible. Yeah. And I think I didn't segue to PS1's NHL EA series until 1999. But the EA games, the EA sports games, and EA's association with Sega in the Genesis era was one of the most important solidifications of them being anything at all. Madden and NHLPA and all those games really helped Genesis get out to sports gamers who were otherwise maybe agnostic platform wise or didn't want to play other things and it was really important and and you can't understate that like NHL 94 on Genesis is considered the best version of that game not Super Nintendo. See
1: there you go. Yeah, but like Han and I discussed discussed earlier, I think that Sega versus Nintendo where Se- where Sega has shined and has always shined has been with the games you could only play on the Sega consoles, you know, particularly the Genesis and You know, like Street Fighter, we already talked about, Mortal Kombat, those games are arguably better on the Super Nintendo, so I can't think of any, but Aladdin is a great one, because Aladdin was definitely better on the Genesis, and it's legendary on the Genesis for being gorgeous and having a a level of polish and animation that was really, you know, unto itself during that that whole era, that whole 16-bit era. It was the first generation where we actually saw wholesale and large-scale
0: porting of games, and... So it was the first time we really got to compare and contrast in such a meaty way. I mean, we got to do that with pretty much everything today. And there are entire websites and YouTube channels dedicated to showing you the finer points of how things are running and the frame rates and the resolutions. And that was a big deal even when Xbox One came out and PlayStation 4 came out and what was running at 1080 and what wasn't running at 900p or whatever. I think Rise, that Xbox One game, wasn't running at 1080, which infuriated everybody. <laughs> I was always one of the guys that, like, you can tell if a game plays better or looks better, but I still don't care too deeply about the way a game looks as long as it plays well. You know? Yeah,
1: that's important. Very important. I mean,
0: you're playing it or you're looking at it. I guess you're doing both, but I'd rather have fun playing at it or playing it, I should say. Joshua Anderson wrote in and said, Sega will always be a special brand for me and even plays a part in my love of knockback with its dynamic of you and Dagan as brothers. When I was a kid, my mom lost custody of my older brother and sister to their dad, leaving things with just my mom and myself. Years later, when I was nine, my mom regained custody of my now 14-year-old brother, who came packing the first ever video game system to exist in my home, the Sega Master System. When my brother left, I barely knew him and as I was maybe four, but we bonded over that summer of 1990, endlessly playing games like Shinobi, Alex Kid and Shinobi World, Spellcaster, Zillion, R-Type, and so much more. To this day, there was the happiest time of my life. Years later, I would bond with my best friends over the Genesis and then much later the Sega Dreamcast. While I will admit that Nintendo had the superior game collections, there just was always something about the Sega and its community. Anyways, I just wanted to share that. So to actually ask a question, what could have Sega done differently to really compete or even surpass Nintendo? Also, what are your thoughts on the Sega CD and 32X? I thought they were atrocious, but want your opinion. Interesting. So let's focus on that last half, please. Great you, story, by the way. And it is. It is a great Very story. Very cool. There's two
1: things here that we can we can dissect. What, seg, what could have Sega done differently, do you think, Dagan? I think the only thing they could have done, again, I think what was so cool about Sega was everything that was so Sega as compared to Nintendo. Everything they had seemed different. The sophistication, the different titles. It just It was a whole different look and feel. I think the only thing they could have done better is concentrated more on strong first party. And they were obviously more you know, concerned with securing things from third party and more, you know, doing their own arcade ports. And I think what they did, they did well. And I think what they did was a brilliant strategy in making it something that was so different than the Super Nintendo and making it feel like it was, you know, gave us a different choice. You know, we really had two distinct choices, but I think the only thing I could think of is really concentrate on strong first party, which is what Nintendo strategy is. So if you want to go toe to toe with Nintendo, you would think that would be a good, a good way to do that
0: the two questions are intrinsically related to related to one another because it talks about sega cd and 32x and you hear stories about how by the time genesis 32x you know sega cd and then you know saturn and all these kinds of things that sega was supporting so many platforms that they kind of just destroyed themselves yeah and i think what they could have done differently is really just rode genesis a little bit longer and then maybe gave Saturn a little room. You know, there's that lost Sega console called the Pluto too that people can go read about that I wrote about when I was at IGN. And if they just gave things a little bit more time and bumped things down the road two years or so to let, you know, I know it's scary to let Genesis go up against N64 for a year or whatever, but then you could have like maybe skipped the entire Saturn, you know, debacle at, at, to begin with and had a really robust Dreamcast that might've been able to compete better. I think the thing that you have to really acknowledge here that I think is so interesting And the next question, the final question we have kind of gets into it is that Nintendo just received so many punches to the back of its fucking skull from so many different people and it just survived. Yeah, it never died by sticking to their guns. It's kind of remarkable and including mistakes and including thick headed mistakes that really hurt them. (laughs) Very stubborn company. Jack Yorston has the last letter, and he says, "I wasn't conscious of this console war at the time, but to my knowledge, the Genesis only really entered the public consciousness with the release of Sonic the Hedgehog two years after the console's release. That is true, Jack. Very true. Was there ever a serious NES versus Genesis debate? What games did both consoles have to offer during this period? There wasn't a debate, I don't think, because I don't think anyone would debate that Genesis was a more impressive console. But they were concurrent to each other. It's important to note that NES was getting first party releases through 1994." Nintendo published Mega Man 6, not Capcom, Nintendo published Mega Man 6 on the NES to help sell the NES top loader in 1994. You had Yoshi's Cookie and a few other games that were out at that time as well. Have you ever seen the Red Band Nintendo boxes, those were the very late release the Nintendo boxes. Yeah. or Yeah. Nintendo games. So there was a contemporary conflict, I guess, on the market, but nothing that was ever spoken about, I don't think, because Genesis wanted SNES. It didn't care about the NES. Which was a mistake, of course, because the NES was still selling really well until 1995 and 1996 even. So, There's nothing really there, but what games did both consoles have to offer during this period? A lot. I mean, and the interesting thing about it is that it just wasn't, there wasn't a lot of cross-pollination there. So you had, between NES and Genesis especially, you had just totally different libraries of games and totally different capabilities between those games. While with NES, or I'm sorry, with SNES and Genesis, you obviously had much more crossover there as well. Yeah. But I'll give them credit because you're right, Dagan, Nintendo really did survive... You know, Sega was a serious threat to Nintendo, the first serious threat that they had to them. And, you know, our friend Pat Contra, you brought up earlier, noted to me in our podcast, which is which is true, where he's saying NES had a 90 percent market share during its period, which is unheard of and will never happen again, no matter what competition happens. Even when you look at the PS2, Xbox and GameCube era in which the PS2 had its foot up, you know, Microsoft and Nintendo's ass, it wasn't 90 percent of the market, you know, and so. I think that you have to give Nintendo a lot of credit for sticking with it and for surviving. And they survived a much more serious threat from Sony starting in the mid to late 90s that was existential. I mean, I don't think that the threat from Sega was ever existential, but I think the threat from Sony was very much existential. And because that's when Sony started just stealing their developers. And that's why the N64 is just stranded. We were talking about Squaresoft and Final Fantasy games and Chrono Trigger. And for Sony to come in and be like, we're just taking Square. your shit can't even handle what they want to make and we can so we're taking that was a massive deal even at the time you know even in the mid 90s people were talking about that so that Nintendo was able to survive over and over again then Xbox gets involved and they survive that and they survive their own shortcomings with the
1: Wii and Wii U and pretty impressive company Yeah, for sure Pretty impressive company. You know what, Kyle? It makes me think of so much. Did I cut you off? No, 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 please. You know, I've always loved Nintendo, but I've also really, always really enjoyed Sega for what it was and everything that made it different. But as we talk about this, it really dawns on me more and more that Sega, post-Genesis, I really do think if they concentrated more on first-party stuff and tried to develop, you know, instead of relying on one or maybe two sort of front men or mascots or whatever, if they really develop more first-party games for their new console iterations, especially the Sega CD. You know, you had Sonic CD, for instance. But if they just sort of said, this is the new hardware, these are the new games, and these are the new characters, I really think that could have had a lot of legs for everything from 32X all the way through Dreamcast. I think if they just did that more... And played Nintendo's game a little more instead of trying to be the bad boy and trying to be the anti-Nintendo and trying to be irreverent. I think if they took some lessons from Nintendo through that phase, tried to set themselves apart at the same time, but also took some lessons from Nintendo through First Party, I think that would have really cemented them and given them a better chance. And what do we re- we remember the consoles? But what do we really remember about Sega is Sonic, you know? So that I think that says a lot.
0: You know? I, I do too, and. It's just a time and place thing. I wrote my notes because I was just consulting my notes to make sure I didn't miss anything that that was such a unique thing that will never happen again because even when Nintendo and Microsoft and Sony were all going at each other, it just wasn't the same and it it wasn't so literal and it wasn't so visceral and there were so many games on both consoles and it was really about these niche things and these first party offerings that kind of drew you into one or the other. So I really do think that what's so fun about the console war of the nineties is that it's really a place in time thing that will never be replicated again. It'll just never happen again. And you got to give Sega a lot of credit for trying a lot of other companies tried in very half hearted and half assed ways and they were never going to win. And there was a time where it looked like if you look back and read the numbers as they were and the, in the sales trajectory, especially in the West, it looked like Sega might win. And, You know, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And Nintendo kind of stood up and and withstood it. But those were dark times for Nintendo following Super Nintendo. N64 and GameCube were not good times. And they had good games and it was fun. And I had both of them and I liked them. But they were getting fucking walloped by Sony at that time. They were. And it was not pretty. And you want to talk about sales discrepancy. We were talking about the 13 or 14 million unit sale discrepancy between Genesis and SNES when all is said and done with, you know, to SNES's favor. PS1 outsold N64 by like 70 million units and PlayStation 2 outsold GameCube by 130 million units. I mean, it, it, that was a beating, amazing. an absolute beating Absolutely to within amazing. an inch of their death, you know, like, yeah. And so pretty interesting stuff. In well, all. very, all, all very stuff. much so. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about this topic before we wrap up?
1: You know what? I was just thinking about, you know, I was trying to think about it in the context of classic call-out campaigns or, you know, when a when a company calls out their competitor, their main competitor, through their advertising campaign. And you think of all the typical things, you know, Coke versus Pepsi, Burger King versus McDonald's, Miller, Miller Lite versus Bud Light, and... You know, the really fascinating one with Audi versus BMW, which actually started in Santa Monica and local dealerships and then filtered all the way up to the German companies, which was really fascinating to read about. You know, Mac versus PC was always the classic one we think about, it, especially on TV. You know, I was watching some of those. Those are brilliant. But Nintendo versus Sega is really one of the main ones that we think about. It was such a, you know, it was such a battle for hearts and minds. And you're right. I think it's really leaves it special in our hearts because I don't think we'll ever see that again. You know, and I also say that it would be really cool. I'm wondering what's going on now with Sega because apparently they dropped their company at games who kind of makes their, you know, all-in-one 40 Genesis games in one sort of Walmart edition game consoles. And it looks like they're gearing up to do their classic editions. And I would really advise Sega to do something solid. I was thinking it could be really cool if you could combine Master System and Genesis on one console and just have... You know, controllers that you could toggle back and forth. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're doing because they're obviously up to something You know with dropping at games. And I have a couple of the at games Sega consoles. They're really shitty. The only positive thing is you could plug and play your cartridges, which makes it sort of alluring. But I'm really looking forward to seeing what Sega does now with the classic consoles. I really think they should, you know, I think a lot of Sega diehards have wished that they would return to the hardware space, which is literally almost impossible it's
0: it's also absurd and needless there's no reason they can't they can't offer anything that the other guys don't offer already so what
1: is the point no the only thing i could think of is this would be really fascinating if a company like sega went back in and just sort of relied on or hoped for the retro gaming space to embrace something new as a console but it would be very difficult to make it's almost a fantasy it would be very difficult to make that work you know, from a company perspective, because you would need third-party people to make games for you. But it's kind of a fascinating thought if a company can make a retro game console and actually offer new games through that, you know, it's kind of a fantastic scenario, but it'd be kind of, it'd be kind of interesting. For sure.
0: And Sega's, you know, kind of old, intimate relationship with Microsoft, with the Dreamcast, and then moving forward from there, I was always surprised that Sega didn't end up as part of Microsoft's first party. But maybe there was an attempt to make that happen, but it never did. And they still are releasing, you know, Valkyria Chronicles. Valkyria Chronicles just came to the new one. The fourth one just came to PS4. And it's interesting. You know, it it's, is. it's interesting what what they're doing. They're an interesting they're company. It, you
1: know? It's nice to be nostalgic and look back on them being, you know, a viable entity in the hardware space. You know, it's it's cool. I always really loved both companies. But again, I think I had that very fortunate perspective of being older and being able to sort of. Pick and choose what I liked from each company and sort of enjoying both things for what they were. I, I celebrate how different they were, you know, and I think that's really important to remember is that there was something through the two things, there was something for everybody. And I think that's what made it really kind of a special time. It was kind of cool.
0: It was. I agree. Now, Dagan, yes. before we wrap up, because we're about to go now and leave wave five behind us as we anticipate and prepare for wave <sighs> six to be recorded in the coming months, we're going to do one more segment, which we're calling You're the Worst. Where we celebrate the worst of something You are the worst And so Dagan do you want to pitch first Or do you want me to pitch first Go ahead you
1: pitch first this time my friend What would you consider to be the worst soft drink Oh I'll tell you what flavor of soda I don't like Cream soda Mm. Never liked it Grandma always had it in the house she had Coke and stuff like oh, you know what they had? Uh, they had
0: caffeine-free Coke. Caffeine-free Coke, which is like the only place I ever saw that.
1: That's true. Caffeine-free Coke and RC Cola, Royal Crown Cola, uh, RC cola. Like but abomination. they had that a lot.
0: I know it's an abomination. It's like you get it for free with a pizza or something.
1: Yeah, it does. It oh, really
0: horrible. doesn't taste good.
1: But yeah, cream soda, I never liked the flavor of it. What about you? What's your? I mean, I immediately default
0: to like Dr Pepper. Or something yeah. like that. Also, just Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi. My Oof. whole thing is, like, if you're just going to drink, just go and drink it or don't.
1: Right. You know? Our sister, sister Dana, a big fan of Diet Coke, I think, specifically.
0: Now, I understand that if you drink Diet Coke or drink Coke like you drink Diet Coke to the volume that you drink, you're obviously going to become very morbidly obese. But I think you have to <laughs> embrace it because, you know, what's better than a Coke? With like a cheeseburger and fries or a pizza. It's just, it's essential. It's oh, just an it's essential Oh, it's so thing.
1: good. It's so good.
0: So yeah, for some reason, my mind goes to Dr. Pepper. I just don't want, I don't want to, I can't tolerate yeah, it. I can understand that. I don't that. like it. It tastes a little medicinal to me.
1: It does. It does kind of ring that way. And who is this Dr. Pepper? Who is this man? I don't believe he's a real doctor. Oh, I see. I don't think he's certified. No, I don't think so. <laughs> you can't call yourself a doctor. That's There's something right. illegal about this. <laughs> All right. I know which one I'm going to ask you, I think. What's your least favorite or the worst comic book character? Superman. I knew you were gonna say Superman.
0: You had to say it. I just don't get him. I don't. He can do everything. He's strong. He flies. Nothing hurts him. He can't die. Not a big fan. I just don't understand where 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 is the tension? Where is the threat? Where you know other than some thing from another planet with some substance from another planet that is like his weakness. Otherwise it seems like he's invulnerable. Yeah, I hear that. I totally hear I don't that. get it. I just don't understand it. I would be cool to see if they can do something with him, but I've never understood that character. I just I think he's kinda lame.
1: Yeah, not a good not a good one. And I
0: you. think majority of the people agree. I don't I don't think anyone's really re- you know, I don't think Superman's really resonated with the masses in a long time since no. maybe the Christopher Reeve movie made I think maybe. either
1: you love him or you just don't get it at all. There's no in between really. You know like you're Jerry Seinfeld or you just don't get it, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I think that would be my answer. How a about good you? That's answer. You know what? I don't know. I was thinking about it. I mean, everybody would say Aquaman is sort of the yeah, default. Is corny to The huh? default. But I'm not really steeped in comic books. I don't... You know, I'm a little ignorant when it comes to... You know, I was really into the X-Men for a little while as a kid. Maybe in junior high or high school. But I don't know. I think... I think Superman is really kind of a good answer. You know, like he just doesn't do it for me. He's the... He's sort of the antithesis of what I don't like about, you know, it's just like he's overpowered. He's sort of boring when you're such a one dimensional character as far as being super virtuous and all that kind of stuff. I think that, you know, there's got to be a little more depth to a character, a little more meat to dig into something about the character that a foible, a character flaw, something you know what I mean? I mean, I guess he has kryptonite, but that's not really a character flaw. Yeah, know? I don't. So I would have to probably go with Superman. I can't really think of anything else that doesn't. You know, I would say Punisher was a character that never really resonated with me. But that's a very exterior view because I don't know much about the story.
0: Well, isn't it like a revenge story? I mean, to me, that just gives him more agency. And he actually kills people, unlike so many of these. His superheroes. family
1: was killed by drug dealers. Or yeah. Something and so like he goes that. and
0: I so I, I actually dig that on the outside and he doesn't Personally. have any superpowers or anything I don't think like so. That, I think he just has street. a bunch of guns. He's just... And he's angry. And he's angry. And that, he looked cool. He did. He had that cool skin tight, you know, black outfit with the skull on it and an Uzi or two and...
1: Yeah. And that's classic, of course, emblem.
0: Open, open-ended question. I'm sure a lot of people have different answers. Scream them at your radios now. Or you computers <laughs> now. <laughs> they already are. <laughs> Uh, Well, Dagan, I do appreciate your time. Hope you had fun here in Santa Monica. had a great time. I will see you in Philadelphia in December for Wave
1: 6. Absolutely. See you soon.
0: And uh, we really will enjoy that as well, I am sure. I want to thank all of you guys out here. And gals that listen to this show, Knockback and helping it grow and sustain itself. It's fun seeing it grow and finding new audiences. And I think it's been especially fun with Sacred Symbols, my PlayStation podcast now being a pretty big hit that people are just filtering slowly into the show from the very beginning. And the stats show that people are going from the very beginning and working their way up. So that's awesome. So when you listen to this in 2023, I know one of you out there is listening to this in 2023. Welcome (laughs) to Knockback. Oh, now blew my mind. Just one more reminder before we go. The show is supported on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. Supporting the show also supports automatically Collins Last Stand's other shows, including Sacred Symbols, Fireside Chats, and SideQuests. Your support is appreciated and essential for us to continue doing what we're doing. Without your support, we simply won't be able to do it anymore. So join the thousands of people that have joined us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand at a monthly fee that makes the most sense for you. And you'll be able to get cool perks for doing so, early access, exclusive podcasts, the ability to submit the questions that drove this episode, the ability to vote on episodes that this episode exists because of that election. So you thank go. you for all of that. Much appreciated. Also, free feeds, leave us nice reviews. We need them.
1: <laughs> Dagan, I'll see you next time. See you next time, my friend. All Bye, of guys. you,
0: thank you out there for knockback. We appreciate you. Goodbye. Collins Last Stand knockback is fan supported over at patreon.com/slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Morgan Ashley, Sean Battershall, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Bloedel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanikos, Travis Depew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fotios Frangos, Connor Gazian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Grableck, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Issa Al-Ricey, Josh Yeager, Justin Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Julius, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Christian Larson, Jackson Lassaqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Joe McPartlin Wyatt McVay, Dennis Meinchen, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palmino, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perrone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Matthew Plaster, Lawrence F. Prokop, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riemann-Schneider, Austin Riley, Ateno Genis Rojas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Scholes, Christopher Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, John Tambanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Adam Van Kuren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Mike Wayne, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Supershot ST, Ethan, Throw7, Infinite, Beric, Mubarak, Richter86, Dav9834, Titus Rex, Donk2015, Gavin, and Random Guy Radio.